I'm not going to read the whole article because it's a bit too long, um, but we may discuss some context that is within the article itself uh, after the fact. I won't, though, say what the article is or who the authors or author um, is or are until after the fact. That won't be an issue for this one, but it could be an interesting uh, thing for, for some of the readings in the future. And then at the end, uh, when we upload this, I'll put a link to the article and perhaps a link to some of the commentary, because this particular article has um, inspired a lot of commentary on, onto, our, uh, onto our blog and into the Telegram account, so that uh, interested listeners can actually go and um, find the originals. Nice. Okay, so uh, after a bit of a pre after a bit of a preamble, talking about um, just giving some figures about the lack of diversity in philosophy departments uh, in terms of the Eurocentrism of the curriculum. Uh, the article goes on. We ask those who sincerely believe that it does make sense to organize our discipline entirely around European and American figures and texts to pursue this agenda with honesty and openness. We therefore suggest that any department that regularly offers courses only on Western philosophy should rename itself Department of European and American Philosophy. This simple change would make the domain and mission of these departments clear and would signal their true intellectual commitments to students and colleagues. We see no justification for resisting this minor rebranding, though we welcome opposing views in the comments section to this article, particularly for those who endorse, implicitly or explicitly, this Eurocentric orientation. Some of our colleagues defend this orientation on the ground that non-European philosophy belongs only in, quote, area studies, unquote, departments, like Asian studies, African studies or Latin American studies. We ask those who hold this view be consistent and locate their own departments in area studies as well, in this case, Anglo-European philosophical studies. Others might argue against renaming on the grounds that it's unfair to single out philosophy. We do not have departments of Euro-American uh, mathematics or physics. This is nothing but shabby sophistry. Non-European philosophical traditions offer distinctive solutions to problems discussed within European and American philosophy, raise or frame problems not addressed in the American and European tradition, or emphasize and discuss more deeply philosophical problems that are marginalized in Anglo-American philosophy. There are no comparable differences in how mathematics or physics are practiced in other contemporary cultures. Of course, we believe that renaming departments would not be nearly as valuable as actually broadening the philosophical curriculum and retaining the name philosophy. Philosophy as a discipline has a serious diversity problem, with women and minorities underrepresented at all levels among students and faculty, even while the percentage of these groups increases amongst college students. Part of the problem is the perception that philosophy departments are nothing but temples to the achievement of males of European descent. Our recommendation is straightforward. Those who are comfortable with that perception should confirm it in good faith and defend it honestly. If they cannot do so, we urge them to diversify their faculty and their curriculum. This is not to disparage the value of works in the contemporary philosophical canon. Clearly, there is nothing intrinsically wrong with philosophy written by males of European descent. But philosophy has always become richer as it becomes increasingly diverse and pluralistic. 
Thomas Aquinas recognised this when he followed his Muslim colleagues in reading the works of the pagan philosopher Aristotle, thereby broadening the philosophical curriculum of universities in his own era. We hope that American philosophy departments will someday teach Confucius as routinely as they now teach Kant, that philosophy students will eventually have as many opportunities to study the Bhagavad Gita as they do the Republic, that the flying man thought experiment of the Persian philosopher Avicenna will be as well known as the brain in a vat thought experiment of the American philosopher Hilary Putnam, that the ancient Indian scholar Chandrakirti's critical examination of the concept of the self will be as well studied as David Hume's, that Franz Fanon, Kwasi Wiradu, Lame Deer and Maria Lugones will be as familiar to our students as their equally profound colleagues in the contemporary philosophical canon. But until then, let's be honest, face reality and call departments of Europe Europe, European American philosophy what they really are. We offer one last piece of advice to philosophy departments that have not already embraced curricular diversity. For demographic, political and historical reasons, the change to a more multicultural conception of philosophy in the United States seems inevitable. Heed the stoic adage, the fates lead those who come willingly and drag those who do not. All right, that's it. Okay. I find it quite funny that you stumbled uh, reading the word European <laughs> while you perfectly read all the other way more complicated words. I, I think this is quite interesting. Mm. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, like, aside from the, you know, sexual and other diversity of that stuff, like, mm. this, I mean, in terms of the aside of the actual people who are doing philosophy, I think this is an interesting point, even though, you know, obviously that's also an interesting point. It's just I think this is a kind of a different point, sure. because one is the point about what we're studying, yeah. right? And another is the point of who are studying that. Sure. So. Sure. For me, personally, the point who are studying that is not that interesting, even though obviously, you know, diversity, schmaversity, and yeah, <laughs> hooray. But the what we're studying is actually, I like, I feel this is really proper because, uh, like, sciences, you know, mathematics, they are kind of the same all around the world. I mean, obviously, you have yeah. stuff like homeopathy, right? You probably mm -hmm. have, you know, you probably have more differences in medicine, right? So sure. you probably have like, you know, traditional Chinese medicine. So the traditional, I don't know, Hindu medicine, I guess. Then we have homeopathy. So should Ayurveda, we then rename yeah. medicine department as like something like, you know, scientific medicine sure. department? Mm. Because then we have, you know, other medicines. So, hmm. But at the same token, like, yeah, I would kind of uh, agree that in Euro like in philosophy, the uh, distinction between, you know, European philosophy and all the other philosophers is like very stark in comparison to, you know, other areas. Because, um, yeah, I mean, as the, uh, the guy, I guess, or the, the gal was kind of suggesting that the differences in mathematics or, you know, in biology, if you study like... Essentially, no. He, 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 Indian mathematics math mathematicians—they were doing the same, while Indian philosophers are not doing the same as European philosophers. Sure. So there's a greater benefit for diversity there. Yeah, but I mean, I personally obviously agree. But then uh, the argument should, uh, like, there should be an argument for the 
fact that there is value in that uh, diversity, right? Sure. Because we can make, you know, diversity in terms of, you know, including Chinese medicine and med medicinal studies. Sure. And is there value in that? Well, I personally don't think so. Mm -hmm. But maybe there is value in mm -hmm. that. And So you don't uh, think that so... maybe people mm -hmm. learning, you know, Chinese meditation techniques like Qigong might be beneficial for their health or perhaps that yeah. acupuncture is beneficial for certain things. So maybe it's, yeah. it's complementary medicine, as people suggest. You know, it's no, you know, if you, if you have cancer, uh, acupuncture or, you know, ginseng might not be a substitute for chemotherapy, but there may be complementary benefits of, of Chinese medicine. I mean, that's to get slightly aside from the point, but... Yeah, so... Like, first of all, we have to establish that there is, you know, like that European philosophy basically uh, it does not supersede Indian philosophy or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever, Iranian philosophy or, you know, whatever, Mesoamerican philosophy that mm -hmm. exists in, sure. in any way. It does. So, yeah. and, and, well, I mean, I, yeah, I would assume so. <laughs> and then, uh, like, also, you know, we should, like, we should include, like, you know, a lot of them other philosophers, but philosophies. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I guess the problem will be also that a lot of those, you know, philosophies, philosophies, they come with the baggage of being associated with, you know, certain ideologies. Mm -hmm. To be fair, obviously, European philosophers are also associated yeah. with certain ideologies. But interestingly, I mean, that's an interesting point. And, and some of the commentary some of the negative commentary has has focused on that it has basically said that this non-western philosophy you know whilst it might you know have value in its own domain these are wisdom traditions or religions whereas philosophy uh, is not a religious um, pursuit and is not derived from religion and is in fact completely you know independent from from that and and only this western tradition deserves to be called philosophy partly for those reasons i mean a lot some of the controversy has has centered around just the yeah. use of the word but i think uh, yeah people don't realize as, as you and i have discussed numerous times how much of the you know how many of the problems of western philosophy for example are, are in fact you know christian problems that, yeah. that so many of the ways we think of, and I mean, including the problems of science, some of the problems of science, particularly when we get into the more philosophical areas of science, like some uh, problems in cosmology or some problems in philosophy of mind or cognitive science, if you want to talk about, you know, the scientific wing of philosophy of mind. Uh, some of those problems that people are working really hard to solve there, and I wouldn't stop them trying to solve them, you know, I think that they're worthwhile research agendas, but they are very much things that emerge out of a Christian framework. So it, it rings a little bit hollow. It's that, that Western argument that, you know, we have transcended religion and our philosophical traditions are completely independent from anything else and they are constrained only by reality. It's, it's again, that, that view that, you know, science, which grew out of our Western philosophy, supposedly, you know, exclusively, uh, is completely independent from any cultural baggage that it might once have been associated with because it is only yeah. constrained by reality. It's not constrained oh, by yeah. anything. Oh, yeah, and now a rational, rational yeah. approach to everything and how we're completely dispassionate and yeah. completely, you know, 
not following our ancestors' fallacies. Completely. Yeah, no, just, yeah. Whereas just these wrong. Indians, these Indians, you know, oh, maybe they were oh. smart guys, but they're completely wrapped up in the context of their religious traditions and have never managed to transcend them. And therefore, you know, they're, what, whatever they might say, whilst it might be very wise, oh, yeah. is not valid outside yeah, but, of that tradition. Yeah, but these schmucks, they just can't transcend Maya. They're just in there. <laughs> While we, we see clearly. Yeah, yeah that's just, it's just weird. Like, I mean, not only for the fact that, you know, the entire discourse of philosophy and science as well, you know, evolved from, you know, the uh, religious, like, theosophical uh, disputes of, you know, medieval times. Mm. Like, so if you remove, you know, God from there, you will be basically debating in the same way that they were debating. Mm -hmm. So, uh, <laughs> but, but also just, like, you know, yeah, I mean, I just, I don't even know where to start. It's just, like, Christianity isn't everything we do and everything like you know sure. we see, every, everything we think you know is uh, informed by the uh, you know remnants of Christianity so we can't yeah. really escape it I mean, yeah, but, to, to a degree but also you know uh, like in philosophy especially uh, having diversity of viewpoints is essential Absolutely. because you know it's like it's like maths right so you need uh, you have certain axioms and certain axioms are like sets of axioms and those uh, certain sets of axioms allow you to solve certain problems but then they preclude you from uh, solving another because Absolutely. you can't break axioms yeah so if you know if parallel lines are not intersecting you can't solve problems where they do intersect mm -hmm. so it's the same would be, you know, in different philosophies. If you assume that, you know, uh, like logic goes like this, or, you know, that you have a single consciousness or whatever, you single, you know, uh, entity inside yourself, or you as single entity, as, you mm. know, Westerners tend to do, mm. uh, then you can solve, you know, certain philosophical problems that are real. Because, mm. you know, reality is obviously, you know, plural in many ways, right? And you can't really map any consensual framework at top of it and uh, think that you have mapped everything. So yeah, I think that, I mean, there's, there's a road that I could take this conversation down, which would go into, you know, my, my one of my major areas of, of philosophical obsession, as you know, which is basically foundations of epistemology and foundations of, uh, of, of metaphysics yeah. and, and how those two things are in some sense two sides of the same coin. And, and, you know, maybe maybe we'll go there because my, my point would be that people who are considering things at that level should be very well aware of the fact that you need to, you know, to borrow the term from mathematics, you need to vary your axioms to some degree and also your axioms are to some degree pragmatically chosen because otherwise, you know, there are cycles of infinite regress and you have to cut them off at the knees somewhere by choosing, like, in order to analyze these problems at this time, I'm going to make these fundamental assumptions and move forward. I mean, the issue being that the majority of people have those assumptions very, very deeply instantiated in their worldviews. And that, of course, includes scientists and that, of course, includes philosophers of all stripes. Um, and except perhaps those that are particularly concerned with this area and that they generally don't question those. But moving moving back a little bit from that, um, there are, are, are yeah. But I mean, can I, 
reply to this? Can I reply to this? Well, sure. What I want to reply to... Mm. Give, me, give me two minutes. Okay, okay. What I want to reply to this is that people are just people, you know? Sure, they have their, They have their biases, you know, and philosophers are not necessarily smarter on average than, you know, you are in you are a programmer, engineer, or even plumber. I mean, why? I didn't, I didn't. I don't know why I said even plumber, but you know what I mean. Like you know, like people are people. You know, they have their area of expertise. They have their, you know, when and within that area of expertise, they can kind of understand what's happening. But their area of expertise, even you know, it's not like domain of philosophy, right? Mm. A philosopher's area of expertise would be, you know, like philosophy of Schopenhauer, you know, as related to this and this aspect. The person does which is, which not is like a funny he it or she it. Huh? Oh, has a funny example because, of course, he was quite a syncretic philosopher. Yeah. He was very interested yeah. in non-Western yeah, no, philosophy. Definitely. But uh, the, the the point is that people just do, you know, like they kind of are treated as the job. So yeah. expecting them to be um, able to understand the, you know, philosophy on the level of that, quote unquote, it should be understood. Mm is somewhat unrealistic because they don't think about it like this. They're like, I'm working on Schopenhauer. Yeah. Then, you know, I'm just doing this. I'm a philosopher. Like, yeah. they're not, you know, rationalizing it. They're not analyzing this. They're just, I'm a philosopher. You know, it's his identity. Mm -hmm. And then you come there and say, hey, you know, not only, like, you're not proper philosopher, but also all those guys in the you know india who meditate and sit in temples and wear orange robes they're also philosophers so welcome them here yeah and for person it's an attack on his identity it's not you know for him it's not a rational problem it's like mm. not me you know they're not wearing ties they're mm. not working on schopenhauer they have no idea who schopenhauer yeah. is therefore they can't so have the same them. label they can't have the same label that i use to define myself which is yeah yeah i mean what they yeah. need is seemingly all all of those people is a dose of uh, you know a particular philosophical position which is very prevalent in ancient India I guess which is interdependence so they you know maybe if they studied a bit of non-Western philosophy although of course this idea comes up a great deal in in Western philosophy as well they need to understand that their that you know no man is an island basically that they are not really even even though they might um, behave as though they're in silos to the detriment of their own, um, you know, intellectual progress, they are in fact not in silos, that their discipline and the particular people that they're working on and all of that has, a, has an evolutionary context. It's connected to everything that came before it. It is connected to things that are going on in parallel to it. It's entirely interdependent. The particular way that they look at things could not have arisen without a particular historical trajectory. So, yeah, which is interdependence. You know, things are linked to each other and they are not completely isolated. And I think it's it's very important that people understand that. Uh, and I mean, it's only it's purely coincidental that that happens to be a very dominant idea in in both Buddhist and Hindu philosophy. Um, but I think, so the, the, the basic problem but there... That would be interesting, you know, an interesting question would be, would Buddhists and uh, Hinduist philosophers, yeah. would they welcome European philosophy on equal terms to their own? I guess the answer is that some do, and, and of course the Dalai Lama 
is a is a classic yeah, but example. Yeah, for Western philosophers, some I, do. Well, exactly what I, yeah. I mean, that's exactly what I was going to say. I suspect it would be quite similar because it's you know people people don't see that people might you know have a, a particularly um, interesting argument like one based on interdependence or one based on on the concept of emptiness again in, in like in a Buddhist context. Um, so semantic emptiness would be, you know, the idea that words do not map reality perfectly. You know, w reality doesn't map into natural kinds that are definable or descri describable with words. Uh, and people might be working on that problem and they might understand it to some degree, but they don't necessarily follow it to, to its effects sort of writ large, you know. Uh, so then they, they still w might want to say, yes, but this is philosophy and that's not philosophy. And, yeah. and I mean, of especially course... if, those, if some guys disagree that you can map words onto reality yeah. or you can't, yeah. especially if they say, yeah, you actually can map, then they clearly yeah. not doing philosophy. And, and by the way, yeah. ob obviously, I, I agree but, that not, yeah. all, not all things are philosophy and that words have an important functional role. Uh, but... They are, are, of course, contextually modified and they don't map reality in a one-to-one, -one, you know, high-fidelity uh, way. And no, you know, I'll just, I'll just um, flog my, my hobby horse here uh, to mix metaphors. No way that we have of describing reality does that, and that includes mathematics. There's a very prevalent belief yeah. in, in Western science that mathematic, you know, maybe yeah, okay, maybe words don't map reality one to one, but mathematics does. It's like no, it's but, another uh, form of description. It's very good for mapping certain things, but not so good for doing others. Fair, even though occasionally I do believe, like from time to time, I do believe that maths is actually the way our universe actually works. But yeah, beside the point, we'll maths is beside time. the point. But uh, the actually, you know. If we want to include diversity of opinions and we have the diversity of, you know, philosophy or science, if we have different sciences in, uh, you know, one place, then we also have to include the debate of, you know, what's philosophy. And obviously they have that debate. Sure. But then we should continue that debate that, you know, only European philosophy is philosophy or only Hindu philosophy is philosophy. Like, without that debate, you know, the diversity of opinions won't be complete. Mm. Well, and that debate obviously it's, is is part. That's of... like that's that's a kind of my hobby horse. That if you if you are tolerant, you have to be tolerant to the towards intolerance. Same thing. If you want sure. diversity, you have to include the opinion that is directly against diversity because that's diversity of opinions. Yeah. No. No As... doubt. No doubt. And I don't think. Uh... Well, I don't think the authors of this article are suggesting that this shouldn't be critically yeah, engaged. Like let's let. That's that's fair. Mm. Um, of course, I don't think that the argument that only Western philosophy, only quote unquote Western philosophy, is philosophy particularly yeah. draws much water. And I also think, I mean, on both sides of this argument, there is a um, you know in the in the the reading in the excerpt that I read, you know, they reference Thomas Aquinas and how he followed Muslim colleagues in, in, in reading the pagan philosopher Aristotle. And obviously they've very carefully chosen their examples there, and they're great examples. Mm -hmm. But I think that you know, philosophy has always been, Western philosophy has always been uh, quite syncretic. You know, 
So you, you look at Pyro and you look at the, you know, the history of Western skepticism and, and there, there's a strong argument to be made that he was heavily, I mean, we're talking like, you know, the third century before Jesus and he was heavily influenced by, uh, you know, ancient Indian, um, you know, early Buddhist thought. So, you know, you can go a long way back and find things that are uncontroversially considered Western, like Pyronian skepticism, and find a direct link between them and some thing that's uncontroversially considered non-Western. And then, of course, when you get into the more modern era, it's just, it's all over the place. You know, everyone's influenced by everything, even if they don't realize they are. But there are, you know, you brought up Schopenhauer. And I mean, he's a classic example of a um, of a philosopher who was very, you know, a modern Western philosopher who was very interested in um, in non-Western philosophies. So yeah, but I guess ingrained prejudice against. I mean, like after I think it's enlightenment, we have ingrained prejudice after everything, everything that we against everything that we consider irrational. Yeah, and we still uh, like in large sense consider all those, you know, primitive, quote-unquote, beliefs uh, as irrational. Yeah. And especially all from those, like, we still have that, you know, kind of a colonialistic, you know, oh, totally. uh, like, like yeah. view of looking at things. Okay. And like, yeah, we're all equal, but uh, we are more equal than other guys. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> that's kind of funny. But especially, you know, in sci scientific thought, or scientistic thought, rather, mm. uh, the... Uh, prejudice against everything that doesn't conform to the norms of Western logic and doesn't conform to the norms of, you know, the way we lay out, we should study those things. It's not just, hmm, maybe they're right, but it seems that they're wrong based on our assumptions. No, it's like they're just wrong. We don't even have to look mm. into that, right? It's like I was talking to a colleague of mine, and she was saying that, all religious religions are bullshit. I'm like, you don't even know what they're about. Exactly. And she's, she's saying, mm -hmm. I don't have to know. I know that they're bullshit. Like, this is it. That's just, you know, that. She's she, her argument basically like, well, they're all based on faith. Everything that's based on faith is bullshit. Therefore, I don't have to, you know, um, know about them. I don't have to read about them because they're based on the wrong assumption. That's it. Well, like, which is a classic example of someone, which is most people to varying degrees, not everyone's so, um, you know, antagonistic or, or, or militant about it, but, but hasn't really looked at the foundations of their own worldview because all worldviews are based on some sort of pragmatic decisions made right down the bottom and generally taken absolutely for granted. So, I mean, there's, you, you can't get off the ground without a bit of faith, basically. Um, yeah. And, you know, when you go into philosophy, you essentially, you know, like, you have philosophers, right? So, the, the same vein. And they they have no idea what, you know, Buddha has said. They just know that Buddhism is a religion. They wear saffron robes and they pray most of the time. Absolutely. And it's like, well, this is clearly bullshit, right? Because they are not doing yeah. proper stuff. They, you know, mm. they have God, they have temples, they have incense. They, may, you know, probably intoxicate themselves, all those pagans do all the time. <laughs> And like, yeah, unlike us, mm. we only drink alcohol, so we don't intoxicate. Oh, yeah, we don't drink alcohol. No, we, yes, we and coffee drink. isn't drug. Coffee yeah. and cigarettes, no, these, these are proper yeah. stuff, right? They make you, we you know, smarter. <laughs> While if you take, you know, all those other things, mm. they make you weird yeah. and they make you crazy. And they make you when you're crazy, you can't be rational. Yeah. This is actually, you know, I, the point that I wanted to raise before mm. is 
how do we then approach philosophies that require you to take psychedelics? Mm. Uh, well, I mean, I... That's, uh, <laughs> no, in order to understand this stuff, you have to take, you know, Piotr and, you know, dwell on this. Yeah. You can't understand it without taking Piotr. Like, what, what do we do? Is it a philosophy? Well, you know, I very much want to get to that, but I also want to address several of the things that you said earlier than that. Um, so we can, can we come back to psychedelics? Choose which um, yeah. Well, I, I think you know a key a key problem surrounding this sort of debate is uh, we touched already on you know people's ignorance of their own traditions and the you know the the paths of reasoning which are historically derived that have. Um, led to them holding the worldview in the particular cultural context that they are from. But they also, as you've pointed out, they're completely ignorant of the content of, you know, both the contemporary and historical content of the worldviews that they are disparaging. So, I mean, there's ignorance on, on all sides here. And that Ignorance is, is very difficult to, to transcend, you know, and we're always going to be ignorant about the vast majority of things. We're always going to be ignorant about the vast majority of traditions, but we shouldn't, and that's fine, you know, we should, but we should simply acknowledge our ignorance and instead of, you know, asserting that these traditions have nothing to offer in a certain regard, we simply say, well, maybe they do, maybe they don't, I don't know, I haven't really gone there. Um, all right, psychedelics, how do we approach a philosophy which dictates that you require uh, psychedelics in order to understand something? It's, it's a really tough one because, you know, obviously, uh, you know, having taken psychedelics many times, it's difficult for me to approach that from, from a, a, a different perspective than my own. I mean, I want to say that intrinsically there's nothing that is discovered or, or is discoverable through taking psychedelics that is not discoverable uh, without them. However, psychedelics clearly make it a lot easier. You know, they break open certain, you know, break down certain barriers, open the doors of perception um, and allow us to, to get a very quick, you know, as we've joked about before, you know, one high dose magic mushroom experience is equivalent to, you know, 10 years of meditation in terms of insight or something like that. I mean, that's probably a silly comparison, but there's, there's a way in which something like that is true. So it, it's more like, do you require psychedelics in order to have the fast track to get you to a certain point. But I don't really think that there's anything that is discoverable about the deep nature of reality um, through psychedelics that is not discoverable yeah, maybe, without Maybe that's true, right? So this is beside the point whether mm. this is actually true or not. Yeah. The point is that you have a teaching that, you know, more or less is philosophical because yeah, it teaches you sure. about the way the way you know the world is yeah. the way you should perceive the world and the way you know that relates to you know people in general and it says like you know some strain of shamanism right yeah. it would say to you that you have to do that i mean this is like an abstract example but yeah. my point is that 
if there is a teaching like that and it says to you, you should do this, like I know for, for sure that, you know, there are certainly Hinduistic, uh, you know, branches, Hindu brand, like Hinduism, Hinduism branches that would say that, you know, you, you can't, you all can only uh, attain um, wisdom through certain acts and those mm -hmm. acts can include, you know, like some taking psychedelics or some you know, even transgressions, right? So, yeah. How do we do that? And I mean, it can be even, you know, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be psychedelics. What I mean that you sure, just some sort uh, of extreme practice says you know. that you can't get it just by studying the words sure. or just by studying ideas. Yeah. You have to do certain act like you have to climb, climb a well, mountain. I think Unless that... you climb this holy mountain, you have no idea. Yeah, so but I think... once you climb it, you have a chance. I like, think... what do we do? OK, well, I think that those again you can you can speak to the 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 major you know ancient indian contemplative philosophical traditions uh and let's just talk about buddhism of course it's the same or there are related um things within within hinduism which is incredibly diverse as is buddhism but there is a core notion in buddhism that this is a practical teaching and that in order you you know you can have any degree of intellectual you know engagement with the concepts but you're never going to really understand them if you neglect the practical side which is meditation obviously so it's, that's a core i mean meditation is a great example substitute yeah. psychedelics for meditation yeah that's exactly that's what i'm saying we don't need extreme examples we do we have exactly those traditions and they they are to some extent the traditions that we we're talking about i mean that this article is is referring to at least tacitly because and I mean, it's it's no issue for me to reveal. It's it's a it, there are two authors, and one of them is Jay Garfield, and Jay Garfield is a specialist in certain uh, branches of Buddhist philosophy. So in in some sense, he's at least partly motivated. I mean, he's certainly going to be motivated by diversity in general and the need for you know a syncretic, or he calls it cross-cultural philosophy. That's his preferred terminology, but approach in general but at least some of that is informed by his engagement with the buddhist tradition and uh quite a core principle there is that this is a practical tradition you need to be a practitioner in order to really understand what we're talking about here so i mean how do we approach that well i guess one of the one of the the ways of um of approaching that is to say that I mean, there are different ways I can approach this. I can approach this from from you know from the perspective of my of myself, who obviously believes deeply in the value of meditation and also yeah, but we're like a different on. case, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're no, a special yeah. But let me get to the point. So I can obviously say that that to some extent I I probably agree that you 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 know everyone who wants to understand the mind, for example, uh, should meditate if you want deep insights into the foundations of your own knowledge so if you really want to go deeply in epistemology and metaphysics and this would be a very controversial statement in you know western philosophy departments studying epistemology and metaphysics i certainly think in my case that meditation and psychedelics has had a big um, impact on my understanding of those areas and of course some people might say that's why you you have very bizarre ideas that, that you know that we don't agree yeah, with this is an it's invalidates your idea Sure, like, exactly. A, a priori, because you discovered this in some sort of state of altered consciousness, it is invalid. 
some people would certainly say that. Like some people say, apparently, uh, you know, Jay has um, Jay Garfield has been in debates with people about some particular philosophical idea. And he has, they've said, oh, you know, what's your source for this idea? And he's cited like, you know, Tsongkhapa, you know, a, a, uh, a Tibetan uh, Buddhist philosopher. And they've said, oh, well, in that case, I don't even have to argue with you. Uh, you know, but you, you've, you've just refuted yourself by referencing a Tibetan philosopher. Um, but anyway, to, to your point, I think we can, we should acknowledge that not all areas of of human thought are equally open to all of us at all times. So it may be the case that there is a shamanic tradition. Uh, well, it certainly is the case that there are, you know, certain shamanic traditions that would advocate or require some sort of psychedelic uh, aided induction um in order for you to become a practitioner within that tradition and to really understand from the inside the insights that that tradition has generated it may be also the case that in buddhism just as a, as a, as a, as a you know the topical example uh you you need to meditate to understand how people got so from the inside to understand how people reached these particular points of view but you you can simply say that i am not um, you know, this, I don't want you, as a person, you can make the decision. I am not interested in psychedelics. I don't want to take them. They seem really dangerous and frightening to me. Or I am not interested in meditating. That sounds like a whole lot of hard work. And, and you know, uh, what Aldous Huxley, before he got into meditation, you know, he said that meditation was the first cousin of the snooze. You know, so some people obviously think there's no value there. And by definition, they are going to marginalize themselves from whatever that tradition has to offer in terms of of understanding it quote unquote from the inside but they can still engage with the ideas and they can practice some form of cross-cultural philosophy or some form of syncretic philosophy or what i call coherence um, which is they can map those ideas against their own ideas and this only becomes an issue if you really think that you are within your lifetime and in your philosophical framework going to exhaust everything there is to say on a given topic and you are going to plumb absolutely the, 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 the final depths of, of human wisdom and knowledge. You know, it, it's quite likely that you can't do, well, it's, you can't do that, full stop. Uh, and it's quite likely that if you want to marginalise yourself from lots of traditions that a have either used some sort of substance or have used uh, you know some sort of sustained practice like meditation or have used drumming circles or have used um, you know music you know if if you if you don't engage deeply with music or any other art form that has had a huge impact on the the development of humanity and and the way we move through the world then you are necessarily going to be cutting yourself off from a particular area of certainly of experience does that mean you won't be able to understand the the verbal knowledge you know the 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 descriptive knowledge that has come out of those areas well not necessarily and i think that's quite a different argument you might easily be able to get the intellectual understanding and no one can say that that your intellectual understanding doesn't you know is somehow less valuable um or you know what, is less valid 
Yeah. You know, yeah. It's it's valid I mean, in its own domain. Yeah, like I mean I kind of I kind of agree and disagree at the same time. Sure, because so do I, so that's okay. like not only, you know, your obviously your choice of experiences that you take will also narrow down the um, you know, epiphanies and yeah. understandings that you can have. Sure, of course. And that will also you know, change the way you, what you think is valid or non-valid. So some idea, because you have never experienced the state in which you need to have that idea. For instance, you've never been into fencing, right? So mm. for you, the idea that a sword is an extension of your arm yeah. is an alien idea. Sure. You don't understand what it means, even though maybe intellectually you kind of do. But then when you suddenly get into fencing, you're like, oh, I see what it means for real, right? So... If you've never, you know, hiked or you're never hunted, mm. you can hardly understand what it means to, you know, to, you know, like stalk a prey, to hunt a prey, right? You can never understand it properly. Even intellectually, you can relate. But for you, that idea will never seem important because you, like, you don't know its applicability, mm. right? So... Uh, and that will obviously change the way you incorporate those ideas because for you it's like, oh, this is not necessary, you know? Like, you are studying, you know, some hunter's philosophy, you know, whatever, imaginable hunter's philosophy. Yeah, sure. And in there it says, you know, like, that when you hunt a prey, you will get, you know, this knowledge. And for you this knowledge is just meaningless because you won't hunt a prey. And you're like, okay, I want to incorporate this. I'll, I'll incorporate all the other things except for that. And so you, like, then we as humanity rely on future philosophers to not only read you, but then go back to the source and read the source and then go back and do hunting and then understand the source, you see? So, of course. Uh, but I think, but at the same token, you know, like, I agree, obviously, that, you know, you can't expect to understand everything and you can't expect to even you know know the scope of that everything mm. so it's you know perfectly fine for you know an individual to be centered around studying cube and hume only as long as we have other guys who you know have who are studying you know whatever buddha philosophy and then incorporating them together in some way like a third person is trying to yeah. connect them so i mean the 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 progress of human knowledge uh is necessarily a distributed affair you know uh there are no people who who understand all things and and advance knowledge whole yeah. scale yeah, yeah, yeah. and there are many a, paths to the same kind of you know wisdom anyway absolutely and, so, so yeah. somebody, somebody's hunting you know in the woods and i'm playing league of legends and we may be sure. having the same so what ideas. i mean there's always going to be some very fine point where those experiences diverge you know so and that that's the case you know there's a great deal of overlap between you know the experience of 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 you know maybe you doing league of legends or some hunting sim you know maybe we'll be doing vr hunting or whatever well, i'm hunting in league of legends like a pro you know yeah, yeah like... no doubt so that there's there's some degree of overlap but you know there are venn diagrams of human experience and at the end of the day, you know, despite ancient Indian philosophies of oneness, um, there is a sense in which we are, you know, th there's a sense in which we are all the same 
and we are all one and we're all part of the same you know super system and we're all everything's interdependent and all of that is true but there's also a sense in which we are island universes as well so you can always get to that point where even the two hunters standing side by side shooting at the same deer are not yeah. having exactly the same experience so it, it's clearly you know the, the the fallacy which you've already acknowledged would be that you can have all experiences and you can understand things from all perspectives now you can diversify your experience back to the main topic you can choose to pursue a cross-cultural philosophical practice you can choose to go and do ayahuasca in in peru and find out if there are any insights there that you didn't get from your you know mushroom experiences in australia or whatever you know you can continue to mine the you know interstitial space between your experience and that of other people who have have you know made assertions about the way the world is but you'll never you know there's no bottom to that and i mean that's one of the exciting things about being a seeker is that a seeker is on a path that never ends you know and you don't have the illusion that there is an end there is no bottom and again you know i, I like that a seeker is on the path that never ends it's a lifelong journey etc you know i mean we, uh -huh. you can create path for others so the longer you go the longer it is to go so Absolutely. Uh, the, uh, but so basically, the bottom line is mm. that the crucial point is to acknowledge your own ignorance. Yes. Uh, and or you know, like basically, to under first of all, to understand what you actually know, and then to understand that nothing. all the other things you just don't know. So if you understand that, then you can acknowledge that other people can have you know certain wisdoms and certain knowledge that you don't have and it's equally valid to your knowledge well, and i guess in that case you'll be like yeah those hindu guys uh, you know they have some something to say about what whatever they're saying i just have no idea what they're saying so i guess i would i would say that we're you know we as westerners and we as scientists and we as philosophers would largely benefit if freaking scientific slash philosophical community would finally get to this point i'll be yeah. so happy when people will be like yeah okay i don't know what christian theology is about and i decide not to judge and not to have an opinion on it until i actually have understood what they're talking about sure and, like, and, and under, just again you, amazing. You, need, you need to understand that there are a, even within each of these traditions there's a massive plurality yeah. of interpretations um, yeah. Of course, you want to avoid the, um, you know, sliding backwards into some kind of abject relativism. I mean, really, again, we're talking here about, you know, of course, <laughs> it's always going to seem to me like we are, but we're talking about the foundations of epistemology. Uh, so there, there is an important uh, acknowledgement of your own ignorance and the fact that you you know ultimately that there's not there is no such thing as certainty that it's just conventional uh ideas or conventional wisdom all the way down so to speak you know we don't have this infallible access to any components of reality with a capital r so everything is just layers of description however you don't want to say i certainly don't want to say and I think that there are many other examples, but the success of science, which I don't think can be denied, 
is is demonstration of the fact that you can be more right. You know, there are way there are better and worse assertions. There is such a thing as uh, you know. This is why I like. Well, there is such a thing as the progress of knowledge. I don't think you can deny there's such a thing as progress of knowledge. And I'm not saying that it's this linear thing that is exactly mapped over time because there was great progress of knowledge, uh, you know, in ancient India. And there's great, been great progress of knowledge of a different kind since the Enlightenment. And in some ways, elements of those might... Yeah, will certainly benefit from from coming together, reaching out and touching each other, and some sort of admixture of those ideas. So, I mean, this progress of knowledge is a many branching path, like every evolutionary system. It is, and it's just another evolutionary system. But there is such a thing as progress of knowledge. Therefore, relativism, in its most facile sense, that all points of view or all descriptions are equally valid, is false. So you need, yeah. and, but that's a very difficult. It's totally thing. false, but then you know mm. you have uh, then within within that. Yeah, I mean I agree that it's false, mm. but then the way you weight the um, what's right and what's wrong, yeah. you obviously weight it on in terms of you know its practical applications and the you know projections that it Partly. creates that you can further test, right? But at the same mm. token, uh, like let you know, if we compare say science with alchemy. It seems true that science is more right than alchemy yeah. in terms of the way the world is, you know, describes and the, uh, you know, uh, inventions that we've made, right? Yes. Obviously. But then, at the same token, we've never pursued alchemy to the same point that we pursued, you know, sure. the current branch of science. Like, we never give it a chance. Maybe if you pursue it, just for the sake of argument, maybe if you pursue it, the, those core ideas, or you pursue them to, you know, the point where you have as many people doing alchemy as you have now people doing science. Maybe mm. you will have more or maybe you know, it would be science about the world. Like you, you have no idea, right? So yeah. So uh, yes, I think that you don't want to suffer again from a naive fallacy of perfection, which is the uh, yeah, no, I, I don't want to suffer. No, not you. Like I there is a there is a there is a fallacy of perfection which is that because you know this particular you know way of doing things is quote unquote better or has yielded more results than this other way that um, this other way is therefore devoid of value altogether um, there's a there's what Daniel Dennett philosopher Daniel Dennett calls rathering which is where you have a, it's just a false dichotomy it's 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 either alchemy or science um and you, the way people view it and that's you know the way people view western or eastern philosophy because the, they were in opposition since the day memorial and mm. then you have uh, people who are into you know eastern ideas and they say all oh, you westerners you don't understand the way things are only Easterners, only Oriental philosophy is valid, right? Yeah, so it's there is obviously it's obviously false dichotomy, yeah. but it's kind of you know combated from I wouldn't say from both sides, but from yes. both sides within Western you know civilization, mm. and so for, be like a people perceive it as dichotomy, but also people perceive it as like Western philosophy gave us all of we have. It yeah. gave us science for starters. It gave us. Uh, like you know, the world around us, and gave us the ability to build freaking cars. Yeah. 
I don't know where I was. I don't know where I was. Where I was. <laughs> right. What I was saying. Unfortunate audio audio difficulties. Uh, At which point did you lose me? Uh, you were talking about how people, um, you know, think that Western philosophy gave us all that we have, and that it's been so successful. Okay. And that, you okay. Know, you can. You can. You can like cleverly cut it all together, and you can do your, yeah, your editing magic. Maybe. Basically, my point is such. There is the false dichotomy between Western and Eastern philosophy. Mm. And then with, it obviously is perceived then as, as as such. And then Westerners, you know, look at the world around them and they see the that they like the world around them, you know, and Western philosophy essentially gave, uh, you know, everything to our civilization. It gave, you know, uh, like gave us science, it gave us the ability to do things, you know, to live the life as we live. It's essentially all the extension of the way we think about the world, right? And Western philosophy is just that set into the absolute. And then if you compare it, like you as the Western philosopher, you look at India and you like, what did, you know, Eastern philosophy gave the people of India? And you look at India and they're not doing well. Mm. And well, for many reasons, right? But also, like, this should be essentially the proof of the value of their ideas, maybe. And you look at that and you're like, well, I don't want to be in India. Even Indians don't want to be in India in a lot of cases. So why? So their, the entire viewpoint, their entire worldview is not valid because I was better. Because our worldview gave us our world. Their worldview gave them their world. And our world is better, basically. Which, of course, would be to ignore the fact that, you know, they had great periods in the past when our yeah. world was not doing so well. Uh, and, of course, yeah. to ignore the, you know, the colonial history that may have contributed to the way that India is now. Yeah. But, but of course, I, I mean, since the Enlightenment, science has been the force that has changed the world most dramatically. And for, for you know... For better and worse, but you know that I'm an optimist, so I think that it has, you know, things are moving in the right direction. And I, and I do think that a lot of that, I, I do think that the Enlightenment has played a role there. But I, you know, I'm not a, um, there's no fallacy of perfection here. There are lots of issues that were spawned there and lots of things that we will continue to have to deal with. And we've talked about this on the podcast before, but, you know, one of the, the issues that we're now dealing with in particular is the fact that science in its, uh, in its schism from religion, in its breaking from tradition, uh, from the tradition that in fact spawned it, but in its need and, and motivation to escape from religious dogma, which was important, absolutely was a massively important step, it necessarily formed itself as quite a reactionary philosophy, as we've discussed. It's very combative because it was forged to some degree in a combative environment. And certainly the, the way the history of that period has been told after the fact has made it seem even more combative than it was. So there's been a feedback process making science more and more combative. We have to defend enlightenment values against irrationalism. And all of this, you know, religious is completely worthless. Eastern philosophical traditions are all religious or wisdom traditions. They don't understand enlightenment values, etc. is all a, a symptom of this reactionary 
you know, of the crucible in which science was formed and the historical interpretation of that period. And of course, the irony is that in being reactionary, in reacting against a certain form of dogma, a certain, you know, um, range of dogmatic beliefs, it becomes increasingly dogmatic itself especially in the hands of the people who are no longer considering the foundational epistemological, I'm such a broken record, uh, principles on which science was founded. You know, those people have actually lost sight of the quote unquote enlightenment values that they think that they're defending. So we end up with this with this situation where there's you know t it's just typical human tribalism and the philosophy that has succeeded particularly in by virtue of its transcendence of tribalism and its transcendence of 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 you know tribally um, formed dogma uh, now becomes leans back and becomes more tribalist and dogmatic itself. Yeah. So essentially, we kind of just need to shed the remnants of, uh, you know, enlightenment and the remnants of basically make philosophy great again. Well, philosophy, as um, I think it was another Jake paper yeah. that I was reading recently. Yeah, I mean, good. <laughs> um, is is inherently intrinsically a reflexive discipline. So. And, and, and science, as a branch of philosophy, needs to be just as reflexive. So what we need to do is we need to keep looking at our, um, our axioms, basically. We need to keep looking at our framework, and we need to keep situating in its, it in its historical context. And we need to understand what pieces of it are doing what work for us now. So which pieces remain useful, which have overstayed their usefulness. And we just, that's just a never-ending process. There's no point at which we can say yeah, yeah. we've got it right. It's constantly, I mean, again, it's just a never-ending evolutionary progress, like every evolutionary project um, yeah. process. Yeah. Error correction uh, never ends. Obviously, obviously yes. Okay. Well, yes, I agree. completely agree. We can end However, we have to take into consideration the fact yeah. that humans are always humans and people are always totally. people. And people seek clarity and certainty. Absolutely. And so they want to know that what they're doing is the best sure. thing, sure. right? Sure. So they and will I mean, always believe that the way of thinking and their way of knowing is the best thing. Yeah. So because then, you know, you will change it, you will change it to all inclusiveness and then you will change it to, you know, some better, you know, set of ref uh, reflections. And people will be like, well, now is the, the best stuff. Of course. Now and is that's the why, shit. Yeah, and I mean, that's why the, the project, that's not so just why. Like, it, has to be, it has to be just constantly, you know, reminded yes. uh, to, you know, the discipline that, you know, it went through a, a, quite a lot of, uh, you know, changes of the core assumptions. So it just needs to acknowledge that the core assumptions might be completely wrong. And we as humans have really hard times doing that. Like we just we're very bad at doing that. Yeah, and, and also even but, in even well, in the way I you guess we can strive and then we'll see. Well, even in the way you express it as the core assumptions are completely wrong, 
is partly an artifact of that difficulty that humans have because again that's a kind of fallacy of perfection they don't yeah, need to, they don't need to like, be completely it's, it's wrong it's partly right yeah, it's either completely right or completely yeah, wrong but, yes. yeah so i mean part of the reason that that error corrective process of um you know the intelligent design component of cultural evolution just ends up being another error corrective process the same as any other selection principle is because all these systems are extremely noisy and one of the one of the contributors to that noise on the human level is all of these facts about you know humans and their require for certainty and requirement for certainty and their tribalist um you know uh the proclivities but maybe we can do better i have like as you're optimist i'm also somewhat optimistic about human nature i yeah. believe that we can do better and we i are. believe that I believe our that tribalism are. is not necessary i believe that we can understand that all humans are humans i believe that we can get to the point where we don't have to build our identity based on groups and that will you know remove a lot of problems including whom we call philosophers and whom we don't call philosophers sure. at least from the perspective of now i don't have to you know compare my identity to their identity and see whether they map absolutely and i think we are moving in that direction and i think that that's right. something to celebrate absolutely something to celebrate all right okay. good stuff we end on the positive note.